0: Ciao, amici miei. Hello, my friends. If you don't speak Italian, welcome once again to Around Syria in Twenty Days. I am again Michael Nimmo, the author and narrator of said podcast and book. So, again, apologies for the length of time since the last podcast. Uh, In my defence, I've been very busy, and I'm speaking to you from Kuwait. I'm sitting in my apartment. And just to warn you now, if there's any kind of background noise during the podcast, it's not the internal machinations of my stomach, it's the air conditioning. There's not much I can do about that. If I switched it off, I would die because it's currently 23 minutes past nine in the morning and it's about 42 degrees outside. So the air conditioning is a godsend or an alasend, depending on your perspective. Okay, so today's episode is me going to see Fiorentina. I'm going to record quite a few episodes this weekend, inshallah, and publish them next week. So I hope you enjoy. Ciao ciao! Chapter 15. It's a mugs game. When I went to see Fiorentina play Inter. Eugene McCarthy said, being in politics is like being a football coach. You have to be smart enough to understand the game, and dumb enough to think it's important. Oof. I seem to have hit some kind of wall. There are still quite a few games to go, but it's getting harder and harder to get myself to them. Of course, Italia hasn't changed, but rather, my get-up-and-go went some time in the days leading up to this match between Fiorentina and Inter. Simple things like having a lie-in on a Sunday morning are now treats for off-weeks, and these feel too few and far between. I'm sure Odysseus felt much the same some days. Oh, Zeus, another bloody island. My Ithaca isn't that far off, and though my battles are entirely figurative, still, oof. That said, these trips are still enjoyable, and I like getting to see other stadia and meeting other supporters. And when I went to Florence, the owner of the Bed and Breakfast told me that he was writing a book too, but his was to be about black magic and African football. He was a strapping Senegalese guy and had played over there, but alas, he was writing in French, so his book will forever remain a mystery to me. This seemed like a really interesting idea, though. I'd read before that some teams would sacrifice animals or get a witch doctor in to try and bring luck or to curse the other team, but never really considered that it might work. I asked him whether he thought it would be effective, but he was pretty vague teasing me with a, maybe, you never know. I'm dubious, and don't really hold much truck with mumbo-jumbo in whatever form it takes, although at the same time, I wouldn't class myself as being particularly rational either. That said, although it might be more of a relief to think that your team lost because of magic, I much prefer to accept that I support a team that's sometimes just a bit shit. But then again, in Italy, the suspicion that somehow your team's been tricked is all pervasive. It might as well be taught in schools considering how deeply ingrained it is in the football fans' collective psyche. They may well have a point, mind. Thumbing their collective nose to superstition, Fiorentina play in purple, hence their nickname La Viola. In Italy, the colour purple is considered unlucky, particularly for actors dating back to the Middle Ages. At that time during Lent, priests wore purple and theatre productions were banned. Some performers, Pavarotti among them, have gone so far as to refuse to take part in productions at the Teatro Reggio in Turin because of its purple ceiling. Think of it, if you will, as an Italian take on English-speaking performers referring to the Scottish play. Even though some of their players continue to simulate an act, Fiorentina maintain their distinctively hued strip. The origin of the jersey is disputed with some claiming that it was a mistake after their old red and white strips' colours ran when they were washed, while others say that the change to purple was a decision made by a former chairman. In a country and society seemingly so attached to irrational beliefs, this flouting of the taboo comes as a surprise. However, if you squint your brain a bit, I guess Florence is the perfect place to experience the juxtaposition of the rational and irrational. It's home to the Leonardo da Vinci Museum which is full of religious paintings and the bronze ball on top of the Duomo was designed in one of the workshops in which he trained. If we consider that religion at time requires a suspension of belief and an acceptance of certain irrational ideas then we can see a stark contrast with Leonardo's rational mind as evidenced by his passion for science and reason. On top of this, his designs for various kinds of weapons from giant crossbows, through scythed chariots, to the first tank, would seem to suggest that he knew that he had to work to keep bread on his table, without necessarily loving his neighbour. The poor sod who'd be looking at the crossbow bolt, spinning scythes, or cannonballs hurtling towards them, frantically praying to the god that da Vinci is said not to have believed in. Italy is in itself a country of paradoxes. Whether it's the long-dead killing machine designer who is best remembered for painting the Last Summer, to the present-day communists who have their children baptised, or the voter who votes for a politician, thinking that even if said politician behaves one way in his personal and business life, he might act in the best interests of the country in his political role. I guess people from whichever country are willing to forget inconvenient truths if it means that life's a bit easier. I, for one, am quite fond of the myriad ways that my iPhone allows me to waste time when I could be doing something more useful, but prefer not to think about the plight of the people who made it. And leaving my guilty conscience behind, as previously stated, football stadia themselves are crucibles of irrational hope fighting the rational brain. Florence is, of course, internationally famous for its rich history of art and culture. Not only for da Vinci's work, but also for fellow hero-in-a-half-shell Michelangelo, Botticelli, and many Renaissance artists and sculptors. On this trip, I was, as always, a simple football tourist, but had been some years before, and if you like looking at incredible art, statues, or American tourists looking at the former, then Florence is the place for you. Football's origins are vague, but a somewhat primitive form of the game was played in Florence as early as the 15th century. Thought to be a take on the Roman game of Harpastum, this Calcio Storico Fiorentino was played by the aristocracy, and it's said that even popes took part. In that savage time before gyms and football stadia arrived to allow men, for it was always just for men, let off some steam, this game, with rules that allowed headbutts, punches and chokes, let people's inner demons escape without turning into a disorganised riot. Rocking in a sandpit in a piazza, referees watched over, what was, in essence, organised civil disorder between teams that represented different neighbourhoods of the city fighting for bragging rights. What seems to be a more violent mix of rugby and footballs, both regular and Gaelic, is still played every year in June. While the rules are unchanged and players from the teams wear their respective colours, their strips now bear sponsorship, or at least do so for as long as the players keep them on. Playing such a physical game in June means it gets pretty hot so the shirts are often quickly discarded. As a dedicated vessel of conveying experiences to you, I had booked a ticket to go down to Florence in June for the final of the Calcio Storico Fiorentino, but just a few days before the match, it got cancelled. Bloody typical. It's played every year for centuries like clockwork. Then, when I decide to go, it gets cancelled because there are a few issues surrounding one of the semi-finals. Thankfully, we tell ourselves that we're much more civilised nowadays, what with playing on grass and commentators always sounding disappointed when there's a bit of handbags between players, even though I'm sure some of them must be yearning for a proper scuffle to break out. So I guess we must be more enlightened. Plus, of course, football players aren't allowed to take the strips off, no matter how hot it gets, for fear that the sponsors might be deprived of exposure. That's progress, of a sort. While Calcio Fiorentino can be traced back centuries, this match's focus, Associazione Calcio Fiorentina, were founded in 1926. From my early days of watching Serie A on Channel 4, I always found Fiorentina an intriguing team. A combination of the striking purple strips, the goals of Gabriel Batistuta, and the unusual backstory of Moreno Torricelli, not to mention the club's fantastically exotic sounding name to my teenage ears meant that Fiorentina always stuck out for me. Of course, being one of the City Sorelle, the Seven Sisters, the Seven Dominant Clubs of the 90s, they've always done reasonably well, trinkets-wise. That said, despite often having a relatively strong team, they've won Serie A just a twice, the last time being in 1969. They've had more luck in the Cups, having won the Coppa Italia six times. They've also won the Italian equivalent of the Charity Shield and the Cup Winners' Cup. Moreno Torricelli, as previously mentioned, had something of an unusual origin story in this age of modern football. Rather than being groomed from a young age in the youth academy of one of the great powers of Calcio, he was instead a player in the regional leagues, and at the age of 22 found himself working in a warehouse and playing football just for fun. Then, in a friendly match between his club, Caratese, and Juventus, his life was turned upside down. His performance caught the eye of the team from Turin, and in a three-match trial he did enough to win a contract and a starting role for the Bianconeri. He would go on to play more than 150 matches for them before moving to Fiorentina, which is where my memory of him stems from. Gabriel Battistuta, or Batigol, to his adoring public, was another footballing great that followers of Football Italia will remember all too well. The Argentine spent nine years with Fiorentina, in the process breaking the 30-plus year record of Ezio Pascutti by scoring in 11 matches in a row. In his time in Florence, he won the Coppa Italia and became Fiorentina's all-time top scorer in Serie A. All told, he played 332 matches for the Viola and hit the back of the net 207 times. The machine-gun goal celebration became his trademark and none other than Diego Maradona said of him, he's an animal. An animal that, thank God, is Argentine. These are but two of a long list of former players that have worn the Viola shirt. Others include Roberto Baggio, Claudio Gentile, Luca Toni, Angelo Di Livio, Dunga and Rui Costa. On a more anglicised note, Adrian Muto, Andre Cancelskis and Lorenzo Amoroso all played for Fiorentina as well as enjoying spells in the UK although Mutu probably doesn't reminisce about his time at Chelsea in particularly fond terms. When I was interviewing fans, another name cropped up, Giancarlo Antonioni, A World Cup winner with Italy in 1982, he spent 15 years with Fiorentina and became a cult hero, a bandiera. The affection goes both ways, as a few years ago, Antonioni said, I always say it, the love of Florence has given me more than winning a Scudetto could have done. Sure, winning the championship was the goal, but I'm happy as it was. In fact, I'll define it like this. I'm the biggest fan of the viola. In 1982, Antonioni played in the side that came so close to winning the Scudetto that he mentioned. They lost out on the last day of the season to Juventus, thanks to some dubious refereeing. Fiorentina were denied a goal in their game, while Juventus were given a penalty to win their match 1-0 and the championship by a point. Ever since then the teams have been involved in what has been referred to as the longest argument ever, which at times gets pretty dirty and descends into poor taste to such an extent that Liverpool are a popular team for the Viola support, in large part due to the Heysel disaster. After a bit of a lull, for the last couple of seasons they've been up in the top half of the table and qualified for European football. They achieved this under the stewardship of Vincenzo Montella, the little helicopter, who, as a player, was famous for his goal celebration that his nickname took off from. In 2013, he won the Enzo Berzot Award, named after Italy's 1982 World Cup winning sides coach, the prize for manager of the season. In the days before my visit, he had just steered them towards the final of the Coppa Italia, where they'd meet Napoli, who had been victors over Roma. Montella said, They're both really strong teams and we're just happy to be in the final, but we'll have to wait a couple of months for it. Just now we have to put it on the back burner and try to not let the squad think about it. For now, we're only thinking about the league and Europe. They would subsequently go on to lose that cup final against Napoli for a match that's unfortunately not really remembered for what happened on the pitch. They would have a match with the Danish team, Isbjerg, excuse my pronunciation, a few days after my visit, But first up were Inter and Montella wanted to get his players concentrated on the task at hand and he said the enthusiasm after reaching the Coppa Italia final has to be controlled because otherwise it might bring too much of a buzz and cockiness. It'll be hard against Inter and they play well with a coach who's finished second in the league two years in a row. All the pieces are in place to make it a great but difficult game. And a difficult game it would prove to be, difficult at first, or at least slow, just to get into. My tickets for the Corva Ferrovia led me to stand in a queue for about 20 minutes to get in, as for some reason that wasn't apparent, the stewards only had one entrance to the stand open for everyone to squeeze through. While inching forward in said queue, one of the guys in front of me turned and asked his mate, ''Did you put the paper bombs in the lining of your jacket?'' to which his pal replied in the affirmative. Five minutes later, having arrived at the gate, the steward asked me if I had a lighter. No, I kind of lied. Join me in Pedant's Corner a moment. I didn't have a lighter, I had two. One empty, that could be handed over easily enough if they searched me, and another more carefully hidden. I learned a hard lesson on my first day at Torino. The steward took this as gospel, and asked if I had a bottle of water to which my answer was again no, but this time more truthfully. High-level security check thus navigated, I made my way in to find my seat, and it was while I was doing this that I was struck by just how nice the Stadio Artemio Franchi is. Normally, stadia are made from concrete, such a miserable shade of grey that even Leonard Cohen would find it a bit much, and covered in fuck-someone-or-other graffiti. Down in Florence, though, the walls were practically luminescent in comparison. Clean, scrollless, and looking to have been given a fresh lick of paint recently, the stadium's first impression was most impressive. Once in, I found myself a place in the Corva. The main ultra stand is the Corva Fiesole, but I wasn't able to get a ticket for it as it was for season ticket holders only. My stand, which was at the other end of the stadium, was pretty full, and despite the running track that separated us in the pitch... I had a pretty good view of the action when I perched myself up at the back beside the Jumbotron TV screen. The kickoff was greeted by smoke bombs and flares from both my stand and the Fiesole, while the travelling Interisti made me smile when they sang Siete come la Juve, come la Juve, which is, you're just like Juve. See, as previously mentioned, Fiorentina really don't get along with Juventus, nor the Inter. Irony, huh? Unfortunately, the match wasn't a classic. Inter arrived in patchy form and took the lead in the first half when, nominee for worst haircut ever, Rodrigo Palacio and his weird Padawan rat's tail thing scored. For his goal, he'd been given far too much time by the home defence and had already warned them of his potency when he'd hit the post earlier on. The second half wasn't that much more memorable for the neutral, Fiorentina drew level just after the break when Cuadrado scored thanks to a weak-wristed attempt of a save by Inter's keeper Handanovic. The visitors retook the lead though, when a marginally offside Dicardi scored from across. They held out until the end for a valuable three points, Perhaps, but perhaps the most significant event of the match for the home support was the return to action for their German striker Mario Gomez after he'd spent months out injured. There was a special guest at the game – no, not me. The Mayor of Florence, Matteo Renzi, would become the Prime Minister in the days following, and this was his last match as a civilian fan. Writing about politics and politicians in Italy is hard, as the person of interest could have disappeared into obscurity while I was typing away. Never mind by the time you're reading this, or even listening to it. But let's try anyway. Italy has historically been depicted as a beautiful woman. But Italy in its current state would probably more closely resemble a middle-aged divorcee stumbling out of a disco at 4 in the morning with shoes in one hand and lip fag trembling on her lips. As someone more intelligent than me said, today Italy is like a ship in a mighty storm. Where is the pilot? I cannot see one. With the country in the teeth of the financial crisis that swept across Europe in 2008, and buffeted by high youth unemployment and a stagnant manufacturing sector, either when being represented as a once beautiful lady or a captain on ship, the imagery is everywhere and grand. However, that quote I just mentioned isn't from a contemporary commentator, but rather from 1876. As much as we may forget or try to ignore it, history truly does repeat itself. And with this lack of direction comes instability. Between 1861 and 1900, for example, Italy had 35 administrations, and not much has changed. The last few years in Italian politics have been rougher than a three-year-old's colouring in book, and with just as many blurred lines. Silvio Berlusconi, the billionaire businessman, was forced out of power in 2011 and replaced by Mario Monti, who caretaker managed the country until elections in 2013. Said elections didn't yield a majority winner, so squabbling Chaos's friend, the coalition government, was the result. Headed up by the PD, the Partito Democratico, the largest party of the left, Enrico Leta took control of the poisoned chalice of power after more bickering. These elections resulted in three main blocks of power, which in total received around 84% of votes. These blocks were the central left alliance, known as Italy Common Good, The centre-right coalition was Berlusconi's People of Freedom party, and the anti-establishment Five Star movement. To give an idea of how fractured the political system is, Italy common good was made up of four parties, while the People of Freedom was the largest of nine parties in the central right coalition. Meanwhile, the Five Star movement's appearance on the political scene, headed by the comedian Beppe Grillo, aimed to shake up the status quo. But our refusal to enter into negotiations with other parties meant that they were left a little on the outside looking in, shouting that they didn't like the game. While they received many votes from those who shared their belief that the political system was broken, it would be reductive to dismiss them as simply a protest vote. That said, whether they do become more powerful, only time will tell. While they have enjoyed early popularity, what they then go on to do with that platform will be quite interesting. After months of horse trading, Leta was given the task of forming a coalition government, and the PD got into bed with the people of freedom. Ooh, shudder. Hands above the sheets where I can see them, please, Silvio. His time in charge was characterised by gridlock and infighting, and in the days before my trip to Tuscany, he was ousted in favour of Matteo Renzi. Someone remarked to me in the days after that something that Renzi had in common with Berlusconi was positivity. Normally, having something in common with Il Cavaliere wouldn't necessarily be a compliment, but a bit of positivity is a good thing, even if one of his nicknames is Matteoria, Matt Theory, as some people judge him to be a good talker, but not much of a doer. A side note, he's certainly not much of a good talker in English. It's embarrassing how bad he is at it, considering he's the leader of the country. Taking control of the country would be a good opportunity for him to prove some of his doubters wrong as a lot of work needs to be done. As we've found so far, Italian clubs often owe a debt to the ancient Greeks, and present-day Italy shares one aspect with them, gerontocracy. This can be summed up by one of their most famous sons, Plato, when he proclaimed that it is for the elder man to rule and for the younger to submit. Il Bel Paese is very much a country for old men. The ex-president Giorgio Napolitano was born in 1925, Berlusconi in 36, and Monty in 43. The average age of university professors is 63. Of CEOs, it's 67, and in the trade unions, it's 59. One way of countering this is to impose mandatory retirement ages, but this often results in the retiree returning to work as a consultant, thus perpetuating the system. All this at a time with unemployment percentages in double figures and with more than 40% of under-25s out of work. Another thing that Renzi has in common with Berlusconi is Calcio. While the latter is the owner of AC Milan, Renzi is a self-avowed Fiorentina fanatic. It has been suggested that his fandom comes not from a place of true devotion, but more from a place of political expediency. As he was formerly the mayor of Florence, what better way to connect with the local populace bearing in mind that the city is a one-team town. As a journalist for Il Giornale, which is part of Berlusconi's media empire, so sniping from that quarter is perhaps not too surprising, Paolo Braccolini said, Fiorentina is a formidable tool of creating popular consensus, even outside Florence, if you can pull it off. And Matteo Renzi is more than able to do that. His transformation into an ever-present at the stadium at some away games, and at times wearing Fiorentina's colours alongside the owners of the club in the stands, is now an integral part of the popular image of Renziism. This mass appeal, along with his youthfulness, has seen him work his way into people's hearts, or at least allow him to be regarded with less suspicion than other politicians, who are seen as both products and proponents of the political class. Populism is of course not a new thing, and nor is it restricted to Italy. David Cameron professes to be a fan of Aston Villa. Or is it West Ham? I forget, and apparently so does he. While his predecessor, Gordon Brown, memorably claimed to listen to the Arctic Monkeys, just don't ask him any song titles. Politicians seem to think that having something in common with the masses makes them more relatable and electable, rather than being the chauffeur-driven, duck-pond-owning private school products that they normally are. In Italy, meanwhile... Milan fans knew that transfer windows before elections could be a good time for their club and result in new faces appearing in their shirt. While it said that a championship for the team would see a bump in Berlusconi's polling figures, although we'll investigate that a bit further in the Milan chapter. The political party Berlusconi set up when he entered politics was christened Forza Italia, an expression lifted directly from football grounds, bars and living rooms across the country. Go Italy! These political football links can be beneficial for the politician's team of choice as well. Fiorentina not only had the city's mayor as a fan, real or otherwise, but on top of this had the leader of the council, Eugenio Gianni, and the ex-deputy mayor, now turned MP, Dario Nardella, voted onto the board of directors of the team. They would, however, abstain from the most important decisions in order to avoid possible conflicts of interests. This reminds me of a joke a friend told me. A car full of politicians are being driven through a country village, and on one particularly tricky curve, the driver loses control and crashes into a ditch. Locals come to investigate the smoking and noise and help the driver away. Nothing could be done for the politicians, so they dig graves and bury them. Some days later, a policeman comes to the village to remove the wrecked car and asks a local what happened to the politicians. He's duly met with a reply, Ah, oh, we buried them. To which the policeman asks What, they were all dead? The local shrugs and says, well, some of them insisted that they weren't, but we all know that they're liars. Poor taste, certainly. Indicative of a lack of trust in politicians, again, certainly. Despite their undoubtedly best and most honest intentions, rather than risking the suspicion of a conflict of interests, surely it'd be better and more transparent for local politicians to not have a seat on the board of their local team. This is asking for trouble, no? It could certainly have raised a few eyebrows when the council decided to sign a rental agreement for the stadium, allowing Fiorentina's owners to use it for whatever they want, i.e. football and concerts, for a fixed charge of €950,000 per year. Not bad going for a stadium with a capacity of 47,000 seats, which is played home to concerts by the likes of U2, Bruce Springsteen and Madonna. All of the takings from the events in the stadium go, not to the council, but to Fiorentina. This could explain why I was struck by the cleanliness of the stadium when I arrived. If we compare this rental agreement with my local stadium, the 37,000 capacity Luigi Ferraris in Genoa, the two teams who use it, Santoria and Genoa, each pay the local council 1.1 million euros per year. Now, it must be said that the Genoese are reputedly shrewd operators at best, tight-fisted at worst, but this deal seems much less favourable than Fiorentina's. The last word on this goes to Diego de la Valle, the owner of Fiorentina, who, on Renzi, summed it up best in damning him with faint praise, when he said, I like him a lot, I know him well, he's the identikit of the new politician.